All right, Psalm 135. Every, uh, every week on Wednesday is my craft day because I, I take the PDF of the psalm and if it's long, I have to cut it into sections and I have to tape it onto eight and a half by 11 paper and try to compile it onto one front and back sheet. And uh, today was definitely a craft day for me. And uh, they were probably wondering why I was cutting shapes out of papers and all that, but we made it. So Psalm 135, now will we get through the psalm? Yeah, probably not, but we'll, we'll try. Um, Psalm 135. Psalm 135 is a hymn. This is a praise song. This is, shouldn't be hard to figure that out, even as we read the first verses, that this is a song that's inviting us to praise the Lord, and it's going to give us reasons why we should pray the Lord, praise the Lord. So let's, uh, let's pray and ask God to guide us as we read, and then we'll read this psalm together, all right? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word uh, again, and we thank you that it has been given to us in a clear way that we can understand it and apply it to our lives. Guide us and teach us as we look at your words tonight. Your sons and we pray. Amen. Psalm 135. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. It is he who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people, Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. What did you notice as we read through Psalm 135 together? Maybe you appreciated or thought was interesting. Anyone want to share something you thought? A lot of admonitions to praise the Lord. Yeah, that was pretty obvious, wasn't it? If you missed that, you really weren't paying attention, right? Praise the Lord. Invitation and admonition to do so. Good. Anything else? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, in, in our English version, we see a lot of exclamation points, right? Um, but yes, absolutely. This is, this is sung with enthusiasm. This is an exaltation. Absolutely. What else? It's also just on God and not whatever wrote it. <laughs> That's true. So it's very Godward focused. 
Uh, so some psalms are talking about my, my problems that I'm going through right now. Uh, this is very much all directed to who God is and what he has done. Good. Anything else? I think two things. Yeah. One, proclaim that the Hebrew nation belongs to God. Mm -hmm. The second one is that the land that they're in is there. That's, yes, both are clearly taught there. Absolutely. Yeah, talks about giving the land as their, as their inheritance, yes. Anything else? So I mentioned Psalm 135 is a hymn. This is a praise psalm. In fact, um, it's part of a collection of psalms called the Hallel Psalms. And these psalms would be sung during festivals, particularly Passover. So this is a psalm that they would often sing while they were celebrating Passover. Now, what is Passover? What is that celebration? That is commemorating, remembering when, when God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt and, and God's coming and, and he's going to kill the firstborn of the land of Egypt and to protect uh, your family, you had to pl uh, uh, place the blood on the doorpost of your house and, and the angel of death would pass over, hence the name, uh, your door and spare you and then, and then God delivered the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And, and if you read it again with that perspective, that they're singing this during Passover, this passage where we read about verse 8, he who has struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both man and beast, makes a little sense, right? Okay, that's why they're talking about that. That's why they're commemorating it, because they're singing it while they're remembering God's mighty acts on their behalf. So in Psalm 1 through 5, we see this call to praise. And again, this is really easy to see. Praise the Lord. Praise the name. Give praise. Praise the Lord. Sing to his name. This is a call. This is an exhortation. Give praise to God. Particularly, it's telling the, uh, the priests in the temple to give praise to God. We see this, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of the Lord. So it's a call for the, the priests who, who, who are in the house of God to give praise to God. And we're going to, he's going to give us two reasons why we should praise, two main reasons why we should praise the Lord. The first one we see in verse 3. What word am I looking at? He is good, for the Lord is good. And again, if we're familiar with our Hebrew poetry, synonymous parallelism, uh, where the first line reflects the second line, praise the Lord, for the Lord is good, sing to his name, for it, what's it? His name, the Lord's name, is pleasant. It's the idea of lovely, beautiful, the Lord's name is beautiful and pleasant. Sing to the Lord for he is good. And then there's, we're going to skip down real quick and see the second reason why we should praise the Lord. It's in verse 5. What word am I looking at there? Great. great. Praise the Lord. Why? Because the Lord is good and the Lord is great. Did anyone grow up saying the prayer before meals? God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for this food. Amen. Didn't know that was packed with so much theology, did you? I had a friend who would pray that before every meal, and I don't think I've ever heard anyone say so many words in such a short amount of time. It was, <laughs> just rattle it off so we can start eating. Right? 
Why should we praise the Lord? Because he is good and he is great. Now, we're going to go a lot further than just rattling this off before prayer because the psalm digs into these two truths and tell us why he is good and why he is great. Psalm 95, uh, verse 3, when we talk about this uh, greatness of God, we read these words, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. And we actually see this reflected right down here in the second line of verse 5, that our Lord is above all gods. And I want you to keep that in mind, because what do we learn, read about later in Psalm 135? those false gods. That's exactly right. I think that's uh, verse 15 through 18. Yep. So Psalm uh, verses 15 through 18, he's going to dig into this a little bit more. But right, right now, he just alludes to it. God is great, and by comparison, he is above all false gods. So there's our two reasons why we should praise the Lord. God is good, and God is great. So let's zero in on these two. First of all, let's back up to God's goodness, the goodness of God. How do we see the goodness of God? Look in verses three and four. Someone tell me what is the evidence of his goodness? I'm hearing some mutterings, some whisperings. <laughs> Don't be bashful. What's the reason? Three and four. What's the reason why we know he's good? For it is pleasant. Well, that's, remember, there's parallel. So praise the Lord for he's good. Sing to his name for it is pleasant. There we go. He has, again, these connecting words, right? He is good. Sing to him for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself. Israel as his own possession. That's how we see the goodness of God. Without a doubt, one of the greatest proofs of God's goodness is his gracious, gracious choosing of his people. We look at God's choosing Israel, and you have two choices. Did he choose them because of their goodness or because of his? The answer is clear, right? It's because of his goodness. His people cannot point to their own goodness as the basis for being chosen by God. It is solely due to the goodness of God. A good cross-reference here. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like, but I'll read it. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. Moses tells the people of Israel this before they go into the promised land. Moses says, For you are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of, with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In that passage, Moses says, God did not choose you because you were impressive. 
because you are the least impressive. What do we read in the New Testament? God chooses the weak things of this world to confound the mighty. God chose Israel. He set his love. I love that phrase. He set his love on them, not because of their goodness, but because he loved them. It's like the circular argument. Why does he love you? Well, not because of this. He loves you because he loves you. He set his love on you. He chose you. It's not because of your goodness. Later on, in, verse, in chapter 10 of the same book, verses 14 through 15, we see this choosing of God of Israel. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his lo- heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. It says God belongs, God owns everything. He owns the heaven and the heaven of has, heavens. And yet, he set his heart in love on you and your fathers. He he chose you. And it's only because of his goodness that he chose you. We're not Old Testament Israel, and neither does the church replace Old Testament Israel. But the New Testament does use some similar language to describe his church and describe God's goodness toward us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Verses 9 through 10. Peter tells the church there this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What is God's basis for choosing us, his church? It's not our goodness. It's only his goodness. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us. He tells his disciples, when he, when he, when he called his disciples, did his disciples run and find Jesus and say, Jesus, I choose you? They didn't. Jesus found them and said, Peter, follow me. And he tells his disciples in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you you. Ephesians 1, 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What is the greatest indication of God's goodness for which we should praise him and sing to his name for his gracious choosing of his people? Not because of our works, but because of who he is. Praise him for that, for he is good. And thou, verse 5, We see another four. So here's the second reason. For I know, this is a confidence, that the Lord is great. Not only is God a good God, but he is a great God. And it's really important that God is both. We've talked about this before. We don't want a God that's either or with these two attributes. We don't want a God that's good, but not great. He's kind, he's loving, but has no power. We don't want a God like that. Neither do we want a God who's great, but not good. Powerful, but no love. But he is both great and good, and it is his greatness above the false gods of the people. We serve the living and true God, not a cheap imitation, and that is a cause for praise. Like I mentioned, note the confidence. I know 
There is not a doubt in his mind that his God, Yahweh, is superior to any God made by man. And he's going to point here in a moment to two examples to proclaim God's greatness. How do we know that God is great? And he expounds on this even more. Any questions, comments so far before we continue on? Paul. Well, maybe going back one step, even choosing Jacob the man Mm -hmm. and making him Israel. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So you see that connection between Jacob and Israel. Jacob's name became Israel, right? And so oftentimes you'll see this as a stand-in for the name of the nation of Israel. And it began with, it began with God choosing Jacob for himself and uh, in making of him a nation. He didn't have anything to offer. <laughs> he did not. No, he was a schemer, right? You, you read his story, man. He tried everything he could to, to uh, get things the way he wanted them and in his time. And you see God just graciously choosing him despite of despite his schemes. That's exactly right. Good point. Anything else? All right, so how does he expound the greatness of God? There's two things he points to. One in verses 6 and 7, and then one in verses 8 through 13. How would you describe verses eight, or 6 through 7? What's the first way he describes the greatness of God? Through what? Creation. Good. So we see creation here. You can see this parallelism again here, like in verse 7. When it talks about creation, he it is who makes the clouds. Look at verse 8. When it talks about the next thing, he it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. So we see even like a bullet, bullet point list right here. Number one. Zerk 6 and 7, God is great because of creation. Whatever the Lord does, or whatever the Lord pleases, He does. And it doesn't matter where, in heaven or on earth, in the seas, in all the deeps, whatever God pleases, He will do. There is not a corner of this universe in which God does not have control. Whatever He pleases, he does. This echoes Psalm 115, verse 3. Psalmist says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. It's an old quote by J. Vernon McGee. He said this, There's, This is God's universe, and God does things his way. You might have a better way, but you don't have a universe. Why is God great? Because he's the mighty sovereign over all the universe. He owns it all, and he does what he wants. And this is why it's really important that God is good. If he owns it all, and he does whatever he pleases, and he wasn't good, then that would be a scary situation. And so the psalmist in verse 7 points even to the weather, weather patterns. He makes the clouds rise at the ends of the earth. He makes the lightnings for the rain, brings forth the wind from his storehouses. These are all things that are often unpredictable and mysterious. And he attributes them to God's sovereign hand. God is great, and it's obvious in his universe, his creation. We should praise him for that. Have you ever been out in nature and just 
Consider the greatness of God as you observe the beauty of what he has made. God is great because of creation. And the second thing he points to, starting in verse 8, we'll call this history, particularly Israel's history, his track record with his people. And what are the things that he highlights? So right here, he talks about, this is like the plagues in the Exodus in Egypt, where God shows himself to be stronger, more powerful than the false gods of Egypt by, by compelling the king, the pharaoh of Egypt, to let his people go. And then verses 10 through 11 highlight, this, we can call this the Canaanite conquest. So after he delivered Israel from Egypt and brought them through the wilderness, he brought them into the promised land, and there was Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and God strikes down these many nations. We even read in Genesis that he told Abraham that the reason why Israel is going into this promised land is because, at this particular time, is because the sins of these nations have reached its fill. And he says elsewhere, I think in Deuteronomy, that I'm not bringing you into this land because of your righteousness, Israel. I'm bringing you into this land because of these nations' sinfulness. It is their wickedness that is driving them out. And then finally, we see in verse 12, he gives them the promised land. So how do we see the greatness of God? They've seen his undeniable power as he defeated his enemies and protected his people. And as we read earlier in verse 5, I know the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. You know, as we think back on that confidence that I know that he is great, it's good for us to ask ourselves, how confident are you that God is great? Is that, a, is that an assurance to you? Or is that something that you know you should believe? How, even in your own personal history, can you see the greatness of God on display? Can you? You know, perhaps you say, man, I don't know if I can. And maybe that's the problem. I can't, I don't, it's not like I look back on my life and see something as miraculous and powerful as God leading the children of Israel out of Egypt and performing all these miracles. I don't have a, I don't have a history like that. So what do I do? You know, there's actually psalms that speak to that exact same thing, where, where the psalmist says, I, I, gave, I gave diligent search about God's goodness in my past, and it just made me more discouraged. So what did he do? He pointed back to the history of the word. He pointed back to what he did with Israel. And he says, I haven't seen it in my lifetime, but I know my forefathers have. I know that what God did in his word is true. And so what do we do, even if we look at our own history and say, man, I'm not, I'm not seeing like a clear imprint of God's greatness on my life. We should go to scripture. And do we see his, the stories we see in scripture as true enough that we see those as an example of his greatness and goodness and find comfort in that? But I'm sure many of you can look back on your life, your own personal history, and see God's greatness, and see God's goodness. Pastor. Yes, ma'am. I definitely can 
<laughs> after I was saved. Yes. So, and yet he recreated me mm-hmm. continually. Yes. He's continually. And I'm definitely seeing greatness for doing that. Mm. In fact, that goes that that kind of hints at what we see right here in verse 14. We kind of sum this up. Your name endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout the ages. Because you're great, because you're good, God, your name will endure forever. Verse 14, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. I think it points to what Linda just expressed. Man, he's forgiven me so much. He has had so much compassion on me. He's intervened in my life so many times, right? He's vindicated me. Justin. These categories from five to seven and seven to eight. Yeah. What God's power is, you know, omnipotence. Mm-hmm. And then by his knowing of us, his omniscience mm-hmm. And then verse 12 is on the benevolence. Yes. And how that plays into the next part. It's like it's the character of God in step two. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. God's continued intervention points toward just how eternal and enduring his name is. Verse 13, I want to go back to verse 13 where the psalmist moves. He, have you noticed how before he's talking about praise God, praise God, you need to praise the Lord. What's he doing in verse 13 though? He's praising the Lord, isn't he? Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout the ages, and the psalmist is extolling his name, his personal name. And I think it's in verses like this that the substitution uh, of the Lord in all caps kind of makes it lose its impact a little bit. Because um, he's elevating God's covenant name, his personal name. Your name, Yahweh, endures forever. Your renown, Yahweh, throughout all the ages. We kind of fail, at least I tend to forget that God has a personal name, and we just call him God, right? That's like calling him deity. He has a personal name. He he has an actual personal name, and it's Yahweh. Exodus 3.15, when God reveals himself to Moses, God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus, I am to be remembered throughout all the generations. Later on in Exodus chapter 6, it says, God spoke to Moses and said, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. He makes a distinction. I've revealed myself as God Almighty, but now I'm revealing myself as Yahweh, my personal name. And here in verse 13, he extols God's personal name, his covenant name, and it's this name that endures forever. And it endures forever because of his constant guidance and his intervention, which we see in verse 14. He will vindicate. He will have compassion. In fact, you could probably say it's his compassion that fuels his vindication. Why does he intervene on our lives? Why does he step in? It's because he has compassion on us. He loves us. And he's intervened in your life in the greatest way possible, hasn't he? He he has snatched you out of darkness. He has shown compassion on you by forgiving and removing your sins. And when we think of the term vindication, 
like someone vindicated me? What am I saying? I'm usually saying I was in the right and someone was falsely accusing me and someone came and vindicated my name. Isn't it ironic that that word is used to describe sinners like us? That God comes and vindicates us? Is it because we were in the right? No, it's not. He vindicates us by attributing his righteousness to us. He bestows, he declares us righteous and thereby justifies us and vindicates his people. God is good and God is great. Verses 15 through 18. I love this section because I love it when the Bible brags about God and makes fun of idols. It's just, they're just humorous and they're often really sarcastic. I was talking with Tom uh, beforehand and he was saying there's a lot of Isaiah in this psalm and uh, I don't know why Isaiah came to his mind but for some reason it did and uh, he's absolutely right. Isaiah really talks about the greatness of God in creation and in his guidance and choosing of his people and compares them to the folly of false gods. Basically, this, this passage is saying, our God's better than your God. And this isn't arrogance. This isn't like saying, my dad is stronger than your dad, as if the two are comparable. One is real and the other is fake. One is, one is the maker and the other one has to be made, right? It's, it's so stark in its contrast. These verses are actually a direct quote from Psalm 115, 4 through 8. Um, same words. If you go to that psalm, it's the exact same wording, uh, which probably means this was an often repeated uh, section of songs that, that the people would sing and praise, and it shows up in different places. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Notice the contrast there, right? After proclaiming God as the creator, who is above all gods, the psalmist contrasts him to the idols of the nations, and they are the creations of human people. Verses 16 through 17. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. I can't remember what psalm it is. We actually looked at it recently. Isn't the, uh, the psalm where God says, he who made the mouth, does he not speak? He who made man's eyes, does he not see? He who made man's ears, does he not hear? And here the idols, their mouths have to be made. They, their eyes have to be made, yet they don't work. They're, 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 there's, there's, no, there's no comparison to God at all. We are made in God's image, and idols are made in man's image. And what is the one thing that man cannot create? Life. He can create a cheap imitation, a replica, but he cannot create the real thing. He can create a mouth, but that mouth can't speak. And this points to a very fundamental truth about what idols are. What is an idol? It is a false god. In a sense, we could say a manifestation of man's imagination. In other words, we could say this. We worship what we create. 
We see this in Romans 1, where they exchanged the image of the, glory, the, the, the glorious God for, for an image made of corruptible man. And, and they exchanged the cre- creature for the creator. We worship what we create. An idol is a physical manifestation of our own imagination. And sure, in ancient times and in other cultures, idols can look like statues and monuments. But if idols are a manifestation of our own imagination, then what are your idols? If we worship what we create, what are you worshiping? Cultures manufacture their own idols based off their own desires. Have you ever noticed that? They would fashion idols to fulfill their lusts. They had gods of fertility, victory in war, protection for their crops. Everything they wanted, they just fashioned a god for as a physical representation of what they wanted. It was a way for them to worship their lusts. In other words, a way for them to worship themselves. So they fashioned a god in their own image and pursue those lusts. But in the end, these idols are useless. Do these idols do anything for you? They don't. They can't do anything for you. Nor is there any breath found in their mouths. In fact, your idols, and again, when I say your idols, I'm saying the things that you have elevated and are trusting in, and you are, you are running to, to fulfill your own desires. And, and it might not be a little bronze statue in your home. For some cultures and, and people, it is that. But for you, it's probably not that. Whatever your idol is, do you realize your idol depends on you for its significance? It can't do anything of itself. It's not like God who is significant in and of himself. And you find your significance in him. Your idols, the things that we run to, the things that we worship, depend on us for our significance. I want to look at a couple passages in the Old Testament that point to the same idea. The first one is Jeremiah chapter 10. I'm going to go and put it up on the screen as well. Because it's a little bit longer. The first 16 verses. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten, they fasten it with hammers and nails so that it does not move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. And they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Whoops. Aww. <laughs> Technology. There we go. All right. Do not be afraid of them, verse 5, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. That's the folly of following idols. Verse 6, but there is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. 
Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations, in all their wit kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz, and they are, they are the work of the craftsmen and the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting God. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the earth. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is tumult of the waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from its storehouses. Very same language as we see in Psalm 135. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. For every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion, and at the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. See, this is why I, I love the passages where they just bash the idols and just make fun of the idols and elevate God as the one true King of kings and Lord of lords. But as we go back to our passage, look in verse 18. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Do you realize you become, whoops, you become like the thing you worship? Those who make them become like them. So, who or what are you worshiping? Indirectly, I think he's actually referring to the idols he just described, where they're blind, they're mute, they're deaf. Those who worship idols become just as blind and undiscerning as those blocks of wood that they're bowing down to. One passage that describes this is Isaiah 44. The folly of idolatry. Again, this is a great one. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. So there we go. The, the idols are nothing. They don't profit. Their witnesses, what about them? They neither, they neither see nor know. They become like the things that they worship. Who fashion a god or cast an idol that is unprofitable for nothing. Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame. The craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails and he drinks no water and is faint. 
The carpenter stretches a line and he marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with compass. Man, what such work we go into fashioning our own idols. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man to dwell in his house. He cuts down cedars and he chooses a cypress tree or an oak tree and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man and he takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. And also he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. And he prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. Now it's intentionally humorous. And we look at that and we chuckle. We do the exact same thing. We fashion our own little idols, the things that we love, the things that we cherish and we cling to when we bow down before it and say, deliver me, for you are my God. And here in verse 18, you see the blindness. Those who worship them and make them become like them. Look at verse 18. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there any knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? There's the clarity that they need to have. It's, it's obvious. How could you fall down before a block of wood while you're roasting your meat over the other half of the block of wood? He feeds on ashes. And look at this phrase. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? You know, the very fact that we worship our little gods and depend on our idols of our own making points to the fact that we're just as undiscerning and just as blind as these idol worshipers. There is nothing more foolish than worshiping something other than God. But the very fact that we do worship other things that than God, reveal that we lack the spiritual eyesight and discernment to understand how ridiculous it is. We don't see it because it's everything to us. We laugh at someone worshiping a block of wood. And then we'll go and worship a paycheck or a video game or a car or another person we, 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 we set these things up for ourselves, and although we don't bow down physically to them, they are everything to us. And, and, and we, the New Testament says, says, beware of covetousness, which is idolatry. What is New Testament idolatry? Covetousness. It's when we crave other things, and we're just as blind and just as foolish as the one who bows down to a block of wood. We fail to realize that we're setting our affection and trust in something that has simply become the physical representation 
of our own imagination and desires. And the whole point of this passage right here is to ask you, why in the world would you do that when you have a good and great God who has done so much for you? Why not instead worship the good and great God of the universe, the covenant-keeping God who has set his love on you? He has saved you. He's, he's shown his greatness and his control over this planet and this universe and all creation. He has shown his greatness in history, both of his people through the generations and greatness in your own life. Why not praise him? who is the only one worthy of praise, the one who has continually intervened in your life and vindicated you time and time again. And so finally, in verses 19 through 21, he goes back to close out the bookend of this psalm. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Those two are connected. Don't say that you fear God if you don't praise God. And you cannot truly praise God if you don't fear God. Blessed is the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. The final chorus repeats the same theme. Praise Yahweh. Praise the covenant God, the good God, the great God. Don't run after other things. Don't run after lesser idols. We're so easily deceived by those. We so easily are, are wrapped up in, 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 in such lesser things that dominate our attention and dominate our imagination and dominate our affection. So there's very little room left for God. And the covetousness of our heart reveals itself in so many different ways. And we set our idols up for ourselves in so many different ways. And we fail to see the goodness of God and the greatness of God that is so evident in our lives. But if we stopped and we saw, first of all, how foolish it is that we're giving our worship to these false idols. And we stopped and we saw everything that God has done for us. What should it prompt us to do? Praise the Lord. To praise him and worship him. Any thoughts, questions, additions? I had a professor in school at, after, at the end of every single class. He would say, any comments, additions, deletions, assertions? Every single time. And no one ever had anything, but he would always say. Yes, Rick. Okay, in the U.S., uh, the leaders knew that men would worship wealth. And so they put the inscription, in God we trust, on the money of our country. So that when we would look at it, <coughs> and when we attempted to use it as an idol, we'd be reminded it's a wrong one. It doesn't really work, does it? We don't. <laughs> it doesn't, does not work. Tom, I saw you snuck out of the sound room. Yes. I really appreciated you going to Isaiah. This <laughs> one of about three chapters that are just before it where Isaiah is putting the idols on trial. Mm -hmm. And his conclusion is in that passage where he says the idol makers and the idol worshipers are both foolish and are going to be ashamed. But he routinely is bringing up that idols can't see, they can't hear, they can't speak. And one of the challenges they does during this effective trial display is he said they can't tell the future, mm -hmm. which the psalmist doesn't bring up, but Isaiah routinely was saying, 
you trust these instead of trusting God. But why? They can't do all these things, but not only that, they can't tell the future. Mm -hmm. And this passage happens to also lead into one of the few times where God calls out the Gentile emperor by name Cyrus just to illustrate he knows what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. That's a great passage. Yeah, it's, it's Isaiah 40 to 44, right? Be the general range? For, uh, actually, yeah, 40 to, if you include the prediction about Cyrus, yeah. you go into 45. Okay. Yeah. But the idols throughout there are definitely, yeah. he beats the drum for the heavy, is uh, they aren't real. Yeah. No, it's good. Yeah, read those passages sometime, and you'll see that reinforcement. Yeah, Justin. So why is Israel part of My guess would be um, at least Aaron and Levi, priestly houses, right? So at the beginning, he's talking, he's inviting those who are in the courts, in the house of God to praise the Lord. Um, and so the, these are often the, the worshipers, right? So he's inviting those who are, are worshipers to, to worship, but then he, he kind of broadens it out to all of you who fear God, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Aaron and Levi both are priestly houses, right? And you could, I haven't looked into this, but you who fear the Lord could even be broadening out beyond Israel. Because oftentimes those who are outside of Israel were called God-fearers, right? And so it could be just inviting at that last phrase, you who fear the Lord, broadening it out to all of humanity to praise the Lord. Yeah. Okay. Yes, Linda. Yeah, he's still the covenant-keeping God, isn't he? If you go back in history, you can see how many times mm -hmm. he still is protecting Israel. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Anything else before we wrap it up? I finished four minutes early, and it was a long song. Look at that. Um, yes. Yes. I want to bring you about What's on my mind is that we look around back and the people that turn their back on God. Everybody believes he's a great here grandfather figure, mm -hmm. kind. Yeah. They don't understand that he's also a vengeful God. Mm -hmm. And that we may be starting to see his plan to bring people back to him. Mm -hmm. For how many years have we not seen none of his work that we're aware of? And I foresee what you're showing here is that the people that forgot about him, they don't believe in him. As far as I worship, keeping up with the Jones. <laughs> yep. Who's got the biggest boat, who's got the biggest cars, who's got the jet skis, mm -hmm. who's got the nicest clothes, who's in the best school. Mm -hmm. And they take they use that to get away from God. Yeah. And then like you said, it is their idols. Mm -hmm. It is their idols. And I want to pray that people come to an understanding that there is a God, that He is a loving God. Mm -hmm. And I'm afraid that some people are going to find it a very rude awakening that they do not like when He finally does try to get our attention yeah. to 
Exactly right, and I think one thing just to close out, right? Why does why do our hearts naturally drift toward idolatry? Because they do. That's why every culture throughout time drifts toward idolatry. I mean, one is just our sinful heart. We we want. I mean, think of the children of Israel. They they just were rescued out of Egypt. They just crossed the Red Sea, and when Moses was gone for forty days, what were they like? Give us an idol. We want something. Right? And so our hearts naturally drift to that. And I, and I wonder, another part of the reason why we drift toward idolatry, too, is we also, and this is something that God warned the Israelites when they went into the land of Egypt, is don't look at the other nations and see how they worship their gods and then copy them. What do we like to do? We like to see what is our culture, what does our world revere and worship and elevate? And we do the exact same thing. We just kind of go with the flow and say, what is important in our culture? We'll make that important in my life, too. And, and, and why are we exhorted to praise, 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 praise? Because that's not our natural drift. We need to intentionally praise the Lord. Do you make it a conscious effort to give God the praise and glory that he deserves? Because if you don't, you will drift toward idolatry. Uh, so we need, to, we need to keep our eyes on him and, and keep our eyes on the word, as, as Dennis pointed out as well. Well, let's pray. Uh, next week is Psalm 139, which we all... Uh, familiar with and a wonderful psalm. Looking forward to studying that together. But let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you um, for um, how good and how great you are. And Lord, we praise you. We extol your name. You are worthy to be praised. And yet our lives offer very little praise sometimes. God, you have redeemed us. We are the people of your pasture. You have saved us and chosen us and vindicated us, and showed compassion on us. And it's not because of our goodness, it's because of yours. So Lord, overwhelm us with your goodness and your grace, so that we may praise your name and bless your name forever. That we wouldn't be um, deceived by our own lusts and run toward idolatry, but that we would worship you and you alone, who is the good 